Hey, this is Jonathan with Limitless Mindset. This is my book review of Surely You Must Be Joking, Mr. Feynman, which is the autobiography of Richard Feynman. And this book was really highly praised in Tools of Titans, so I decided to pick it up on Kindle, and I found it to both be quite charming and easy to read, as an, and well-written as an autobiography should be, as well as quite enlightening about science. Richard Feynman was a science and mathematics prodigy and one of the great physicists of the 20th century. He worked on the atomic bomb as part of the Manhattan Project and as a professor at Caltech and Cornell. He was a true polymath and one of the great physicists of the 20th century. He had a bit of an anti-establishmentarian streak and was a contrarian thinker. On working for the military. He began working for the U.S. Army during World War II. He worked on a mechanical computer for directing artillery. Then he went on to work at Los Alamos where they developed the atomic bomb. He describes the very first nuclear detonation. Time comes and this tremendous flash there is so bright that I duck and I see this purple splotch on the floor of the truck. I said, that's not it, that's an after image. So I look back up and I see this white light changing into yellow and then into orange. Clouds form and disappear again from the compression and expansion of the shockwave. Apparently, he just could not contain his curiosity, and he gazed upon the, uh, the very first blast without using the eye protection that everyone was ordered to wear. I'm probably the only guy that saw it with the human eye. As one of the scientists actually responsible for developing the nuclear bomb, I think he's one of the few people that's actually qualified to moralize on the topic of using nuclear weapons in war and uh, unfortunately this topic was not broached in the book. Two of my favorite uh, historians, thinkers, Dan Carlin and Stefan Molyneux both have uh, kind of opposing viewpoints on this topic. I'll link to uh, both of their views below this video. Uh, it's quite interesting. I recommend you, you hear both sides of this particular debate. I still haven't made up my mind on it, and Richard Feynman hasn't helped me. On management strategy. So those of you familiar with the Manhattan Project will remember that there was 600,000 souls working on it but only a very elite few of them actually knew that they were working together on a bomb that would be powerful enough to destroy a whole city. 
Oppenheimer went and talked to the security and got special permission so I could give a nice lecture about what we were doing. And they were all excited. We're fighting a war. We see what it is. They knew what the numbers meant. If the pressure came out higher, that meant there was more energy released and so on and so on. They knew what they were doing. Complete transformation. They began to invent ways of doing it better. The point here is that people don't need to know the exact specifics of what they are doing. But if they're given a moral mission like winning a war, they'll be imbued with uh, great genius and motivation. At MIT in college, he worked on cycliotron machines that I'll show you some pictures of. He also worked on some interesting things like phages. And a phage is a virus that contains DNA and attacks bacteria. I wonder if there's a way to do CRISPR gene editing with phages. Perhaps some of you that are familiar with uh, CRISPR, more familiar with it, can let me know in the comments. I, for one, definitely want my, my CRISPR Gattaca baby. I want to I wanna have a baby that has like an IQ of 150 so the baby will grow up to become a, a millionaire or a billionaire or a trillionaire and then can just, you know, take care of me in the, in the uh, lap of luxury as I uh, progress into my dotage on sleep. He had some interesting insights on dreaming and the nature of consciousness. I also noticed that as you go to sleep, the ideas continue, but they become less and less logically interconnected. Yes, as we slip into unconsciousness, we become more and more overwhelmed by the informational depths of our mind. And Feynman also experienced lucid dreaming. When you're dreaming, this interpretation department is still operating, but it's all slopped up. It's telling you that you're seeing a human hair in the greatest detail, when it isn't true. It's interpreting the random junk entering the brain as a clear image. Recently, I was contemplating about how dreams are likely an interpretation of an excess of information. So neuroscientists and dream researchers have long hypothesized that dreams are a threat simulation environment that is a result of millions and billions of years of our evolutionary psychology. And you know, this is why dreams uh, consistently, uh, they have a lot of uh, threatening things that are going on in them. Like being chased through a dark alley, a car crashing on the highway, falling off a building, etc. Yet dreams are far from being an ideal threat simulation. More or less, you know, about a third of the time dreams are something dangerous. A third of the time, they are just nonsense conversations with old acquaintances. And a third of the time, they are sex with three-boobed women or 
whatever it is that tickles your fancy. And why is it that we forget dreams so recently after having them? Surely our evolutionary psychology, billions of years of evolutionary psychology could have given us a more cogent threat simulation environment. So I think that dreams must at least be something more than just a threat simulation environment. I was listening recently to a interview with Edward Snowden and he was talking about how if we ever received a radio signal from outer space, like from extraterrestrial aliens, likely that radio signal would just look like static to us because the encoding mechanisms that the aliens would use would so densely encode that information that to us it would just be indecipherable static. And dreams are clearly a manifestation of consciousness. You know, in dreams we are conscious of ourselves, we're conscious of our bodies, our feelings, our uh, friends and family and acquaintances, sometimes even our, our other memories, sometimes we're conscious of the dream itself. So I find it quite likely that dreams are a pattern in the static. We all know that our dreams, a lot of times, have something to do with the things that happened that day. And we also know that our quality of sleep determines how well our short-term memory of things that happened that day gets translated and encoded into our long-term memory. I'd love to see a sleep or dream study done trying to see if there is a correlation between quality of sleep, which is pretty easy to measure. I can, you know, measure it with my with my sleep cycle app and of course there's a whole lot more accurate ways of measuring it. Seeing if there's a connection between that and themes from that day's events showing up in dreams. On Seducing Women, Richard Feynman loved the ladies and he writes humorously about his adventures and misadventures chasing skirts. A uh, pickup mentor told him under no circumstances be a gentleman. You must disrespect the girls. Some things just don't change, do they? I built up my psychology differently. I adopted the attitude that those bar girls are all bitches. They aren't worth anything. And all they're in there for is to get you to buy them a drink. And they're not gonna give you a goddamn thing. I'm not going to be a gentleman to such worthless bitches. Although uh, he did end up being, it uh, sounds like, happily married twice. I suspect if Richard Feynman had been born 50 years later, he would have ended up being a, what a serious uh, pickup artist. On Brazil, like myself, he was seduced by and really immersed himself in the vibrant culture of a South American country. Because I liked it so much that first time in Brazil, I went again a year later, this time for 10 months. 
I think I told him that when I had been in Brazil the first time, I had heard a samba band practicing in the street and I wanted to learn more about Brazilian music. So he lived in Recife and he also lived in Rio de Janeiro near Avenida Atlantica. As an artist, later in his life, he developed an artistic streak doing drawing and making music. He even joined a samba band in Brazil, although he definitely did not hold all artists in high esteem. The artists were very interesting people. Some of them were absolute fakes. They would claim to be an artist and everybody agreed they were an artist, but when you'd sit and talk to them, they made no sense whatsoever. As an anti-establishmentarian, in the uh, latter half of the book, he diagnoses the problem of bad science and has got quite a bit of criticism for how establishments corrupt science. And I was reading this book while I was also reading Anti-Fragile by Nassim Taleb. And interestingly, this is why I think it's so great to read two books at a time, because you'll find these, these connections between great minds. So interestingly, these two books, they shared the sentiment that the antidote to bad science and the antidote to bad theories that do science and do society at large harm is practitioners and doers, uh, people that are willing to speak up and buck the trend and be a little bit rebellious and be a little bit, think outside the box a little bit and cause a little bit of trouble. The trouble with theorists is they never pay attention to the experiments. He draws the comparison in the book between witch doctors and uh, scientific theorists that for thousands of years, people believe that witch doctors doing a ritual or incantation could heal serious medical problems. And now in the modern age, we know that those things really don't work. Yet those witch doctors, they fooled everyone for thousands of years. Even now in many parts of the world, people still go to witch doctors and pay them good money to do nothing. And this reveals a real weakness in human psychology. We are willing to believe complete nonsense when presented with a theory that appeals to our confirmation bias. The witch doctors had elaborate metaphysical theories about why their healing worked. And thanks to a combination of confirmation bias, placebo effect, and probably some herbal medicine that actually works, people believe them. Currently, I'm reading this excellent historical fiction series about the uh, Spanish conquistadors conquering Mexico. And it has these amazingly morbid descriptions of the, uh, of the violence, of the human sacrifices that that culture practiced. 
you know, of uh, thousands and thousands of virgin teenage girls that were having their hearts cut out on the altars of the, uh, of the, uh, the, the, that were located on these, these flat topped pyramids where the priests of the Aztecs would conduct these uh, ghastly religious ceremonies. And reading this book, I, I think to myself, how the hell is it that that the normal people of that civilization were able to justify thousands and thousands of these bloody sacrifices being done every year or multiple times. Well, it was that the royalty and the high priest classes told the masses that these sacrifices ensured successful military campaigns, fertility, good weather, a prosperous harvest or whatever. And when good fortune followed a great bloody week of sacrifices, the people figured that it must be because their war god was happy. And if bad luck ensued, well, that must be because they just had not sacrificed enough victims to their god. And that's the power of theory plus entropy in a sufficiently chaotic environment. Human beings can be made to believe the most unreal bullshit to make sense of things. We desire causality above all. Luckily, we don't have human sacrifices anymore, but Feynman makes the point that often Scientists are the new high priests of society, and often they are the purveyors of and the merchants of our demand, our incessant demand for theories to explain everything, and often they're wrong. He writes, There are big schools of reading methods and mathematics methods and so forth, but if you notice, you'll see that the reading scores keep going down or hardly even going up in spite of the fact that we continually use the same people to improve the methods. There's a witch doctor remedy that doesn't work and it ought to be looked into. How do they know that their methods should work? Another example is how we treat criminals. We obviously have made no progress, lots of theory, but no progress in decreasing the amount of crime by the method we use to handle criminals. Yet these things are said to be scientific. So we really ought to look into theories that don't work and science that isn't science. I think the educational and psychological studies I mentioned are examples of what I would like to call cargo cult science. On scientific integrity, he writes, a principle of scientific thought that corresponds to a kind of utter honesty, a kind of leaning over backwards. For example, if you're doing an experiment, you should report everything you think that might make it invalid, not only what you think is right about it, other causes could possibly explain your results and things you thought of that you've eliminated by some other experiment and how they worked to make sure the other fellow can tell 
they've been eliminated. Details that could throw doubt on your interpretation must be given if you know them. You must do the best you can if you know anything at all wrong or possibly wrong to explain it. If you make a theory, for example, and advertise it or put it out, then you must also put down all the facts that disagree with it, as well as those that agree with it. In summary, the idea is to try to give all the information to help others to judge the value of your contribution, not just the information that leads to judgment in one particular direction or another. On plotting data. It depended on one or two points at the very edge of the range of the data. And there's a principle that a point on the edge of the range of the data, the last point isn't very good because if it was, then there'd be other points further along. You don't want to judge a body of data by its most extreme points. Hey, that's good advice for life in general, isn't it? on fake education. He describes how in Brazil, he discovered a fundamental error in the education system, that students were excellent at regurgitating facts, theories, and formulas about mathematics and physics, but they could not for the life of them apply that information in practice. They were just memorizing information. He thought this was a major issue, so he addressed his students and the professors there and identified this issue of the fake education that the pupils were receiving. He writes that they soberly accepted his criticism and pondered ways to improve. I can just imagine if you did that now at a university, if you criticized both the uh, students the teachers and the methodology that they were using, it would probably be a total outrage. They would probably run you out of there and call you a racist. He also describes how the students refused to ask questions because they wanted to appear to understand the topic being taught perfectly. I explained how useful it was to work together, to discuss the questions, to talk it over, but they wouldn't do that either because they would be losing face if they had to ask someone else. It was pitiful. All the work they did, intelligent people, but they got themselves into this funny state of mind, this strange kind of self-propagating education, which is meaningless utterly meaningless. On government bureaucracy, he relates this funny story that he agrees to do a talk on science at the local university in exchange for $50 on the condition that he only has to sign his name 13 times, no more than 13 times. Yet for all of the city bureaucracy and all the paperwork that you got to do, he ends up having to sign his name 13 times. So on principle, he decides to refuse to accept the check after doing the talk for the students. But then the city employee explains to him that he must accept the check, that there's no way that they can't not pay him. 
Finally, it got straightened out. It took a long time, it was very complicated, but I used the 13th signature to cash my check. On equality, he has some real insights on the issue of social equality, which is still so hotly debated. I wrote out carefully, as best I could, what I thought the subject of the ethics of equality and education might be. And I gave some examples of the kinds of problems I thought we might be talking about. For instance, in education, you increase differences. If someone's good at something, you try to develop his ability, which results in differences or inequalities. So if education increases inequality, is this ethical? Then after giving some examples, I went on to say that while the fragmentation of knowledge is a difficulty because the complexity of the world makes it hard to learn things, in light of my intention, of the realm of the subject, I couldn't see how the fragmentation of knowledge had anything to do with anything approximating what the ethics of equality in education might more or less be. The fragmentation of knowledge is this phrase that they use to describe this, this, this growing long tail of uh, domains of knowledge and expertise. So 500 years ago in a town, you would have a doctor, a lawyer, a metalsmith, a farmer, and a priest, right? And that doctor could do everything from treating an illness to delivering a baby. But now you have hundreds of different types of doctors, if not thousands. We have domains of expertise within domains of expertise and these proto-social justice warriors that he was hanging out with were saying that this fragmentation of knowledge is creating inequalities that are making the world worse for everyone. Somehow, if that makes zero sense to you, it also made zero sense to Richard Feynman. Внимание. Говорит. A very nice, very Jewish man gave a speech. It was a good speech, and he was a very good speaker. So while it sounds crazy now, when I'm telling about it, at the time, his main idea sounded completely obvious and true. He talked about the big differences in the welfare of various countries, which cause jealousy, which leads to conflict. And now we have atomic weapons and any war and we're doomed. So therefore, the right way out is to strive for peace by making sure there are no great differences from place to place. And since we have so much in the United States, we should give up nearly everything to the other countries until we're all even. I think Richard Feynman would agree that we are all beneficiaries of inequality. We live lives of almost total comfort and security. We enjoy 
privileges that would make a king from 500 years ago jealous. And our lives are so good thanks to inequality. We live in the most compassionate, peaceful, and rational world yet because great men imposed good ideas upon society. Without the inequality of intelligence, we would be bereft of all the extraordinary advances in medicine that have vanquished so much suffering from the world. And these advances were made mostly by smart guys with IQs over 120. With inequality, we get constructive competition between firms seeking to provide us a smarter phone, a safer car, or a more comfortable bed. It is wealth inequality that allows for the research and development of fantastic new technologies and products. The vast, boundless number of entertainment and lifestyle options that we have are thanks to inequality and differences in taste, curiosity, and culture. The most inspiring art is a result of artists that are striving for something or expressing their individuality, not their normality. If all artists were equal, how boring would their art be? Now, equality is essential to civilization as a legal concept. We should all be treated equally under the law, right? But it is a terrible value to be pursued for its own sake. It really is the ultimate anti-value. Equality is the enemy of greatness and the parent of mediocrity and suffering. Equality promises paradise but delivers dystopia. Everything that makes the world interesting or life good is a product of inequality. I don't recommend that you buy or read every book that I do a book review of. Some books I can capture and transmit to you the themes that are essential to your life hacking and biohacking, but I would say if you are fairly passionate about and interested in science and uh, critical thinking, I'd recommend that you pick up this book. Again, it's an autobiography, so it's uh, fairly charming. It's fairly easy to read. It wasn't too long. I will go ahead and link to it below this video. Again, I'm Jonathan with Limitless Mindset, and as always, I look forward to a continued conversation with you.